What's up, everybody? My name is Shane Kohler, and this is The Conscious Love Show. Thanks so much for joining me here, where each week I'm sharing true-to-life insights and experiences from my journey and how I've created the loving and committed partnership I have today. I answer your questions and have live discussions with you so I can support you in your specific situation. And I bring in experts and people who know their stuff so we can all learn from their perspectives. Thanks again for checking out the show. Please subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on the most. And I would love it so much if you'd leave a review and tell people what you think of us. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at The Living Relationship to connect more closely. And I'm grateful to be supporting you on your journey to love. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Conscious Love Show. Been looking forward to today's episode. As I shared last week, I've been writing the Inspired Love book. Um, many of you have either taken or are familiar with my program, Inspired Love, and what I've my goal before the end of the year is to get the rough draft done of taking everything that's in the program and putting it into a book, so I can get that book out there next year. So as I've been writing, you know, each chapter of the book and. Uh, just, you know, figuring out where everything needs to go and how to set it all up and getting these ideas, you know, out of my head and, and onto my computer. Um, it's, it's been really awesome just to revisit these ideas and be able to explore them in more detail. And it's really given me a lot of material for what I want to talk about on the podcast and what I want to share with all of you. In today's episode, I want to talk about our belief systems, how they form. I want to talk about uh, our behavioral adaptations that come out of our belief systems. So, you know, I'll go into more detail about this, but you know, in early life, very early life, actually, we start to develop belief systems. We start to develop ways of framing and defining the world. And then what happens is we adjust our behavior to be according to those belief systems. And I'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Then what happens is we get what I'm gonna call uh, payoffs or in psychology, they're called secondary gains. But your payoffs or your secondary gains are these addictive rewards that reinforce your belief systems and kind of perpetuate the status quo just over and over again, year after year. So what I want to do in today's episode is really just break down how all these different elements work, how they all tie together and what this really means for your life and for your love. I was... It was quite an epiphany for me. I remember this is when I was, you know, getting my education and I was working with uh, some other coaches and, and people. And I, I was learning a lot about this kind of stuff. And I remember, I don't know, I guess everything that I was studying kind of all came together. But I had an epiphany one day when I realized that we don't really make choices very often, like, like clear, conscious choices. Those are, those are very rare for most humans. <laughs> Most people do not make clear conscious choices and we live under the illusion that we have free will. And it seems like in any moment, there are a million different options to choose from. And it seems like whichever one you choose, you're choosing that one. And it seems like, you know, of all the options available, I'm choosing this option. And that's actually not what's happening. So in every moment, there are literally millions of options available. There are literally so many things we could choose, so many directions we could go. Like in any moment, we could literally turn our whole life around into, you know, like we could, so much is available to us in every moment. 
But what we, quote, choose, and I'm, I'm putting choose in quotes because it's not really a choice, what we do most of the time is our belief systems direct us to make certain choices. Our belief systems direct us to do certain things. And what most of us do is we act according to our beliefs. We act according to the definitions that we've given to life, to the world, to ourselves, to other people, to love, to all of it. We've defined things in a certain way and then we must live according to the way we've defined things. And so, yes, in any moment, there are millions of options available. There are millions of things that theoretically we could choose. But in the moment that we are choosing, the amount of choices we have is limited to what fits in with our belief systems. And so I want to invite everybody right now to think about a a time in your life when you were not at your best, okay? Think about a particularly crazy moment for you. <laughs> it shouldn't be too hard. I know we've all had those crazy moments, right? So I want you to think about a particular moment of crazy for you. When maybe you were triggered in a relationship or somebody wasn't responding or you know maybe you started sending them a million text messages or, or whatever, whatever the case is, I want you to think of you know, a time when you were particularly crazy. And, you know, I've, I've definitely had these times. We've all had these times. There's no shame in it. It's very human, very normal. But I want you to just consider this and consider how you weren't actually choosing in that moment. Like you weren't actually sitting down and going, you know, objectively speaking, what is the best thing for my life right now? Of all the things I could possibly do in this moment, like what, what is the, what is the choice that is the best thing for my life? That's going to create what I want. That's going to make me feel the way I want to feel. That's going to get me where I want to go and, and everything in between, right? Like in that moment, you weren't really doing that. Something had taken you over. Eckhart Tolle, he's a mindfulness teacher for those of you who aren't familiar with him. He, he says like, this happens to you, right? It's, it's, it, it actually, it's like something comes over you. It like takes control of you and it starts choosing for you. And the what, what's happening is, is that something is being triggered in your belief systems, in what you believe about yourself and what you believe about life and what you believe about other people. And we'll get into how all this works in more detail. But something is being triggered and activated in your belief systems. And when it gets activated like that, you have no choice but to operate in accordance with your belief systems. And then afterwards, maybe you come back to sanity and you go, oh my God, what did I do? And I can't believe I did that. And I don't know what came over me. And then maybe in a, in a more rational state of mind, you start to realize that, wow, like something actually happened there. But what most of us even do in that moment is we go, I'm never going to do that again. And then we just move on and we don't actually go, well, what happened there? Like, why was I not able to be my best self? What was happening for me that made me crazy? Like most of us are not getting in touch with that. We're just going, whoa, I never want to do that again. And then we try to move on. But inevitably, if you just move on, something else is going to come up that's going to trigger you in the same way, that's going to activate those same feelings. It's going to activate those same thoughts, those same experiences, and it's going to happen again. So what is happening here? Let's just, let's start to dive in to what's happening and how this all works and how it all forms. Because 
as we as we go into this today, and as we as we explore this conversation, what you're going to see is this is very insidious. This is it's it's not something to be taken lightly. This is actually your whole life at stake right now. Your life, your relationships, your love, everything you want, everything you desire, everything you dream about is going to hinge on you getting in touch with what's operating under the surface that throws you into these reactions. And if you if you cannot find a way to circumvent these reactions, they will control your life. They will make your choices for you and they will lead you to places you don't want to be. So I'm going to start by speaking about belief systems, what they are, how they form. And many of you, if you listen to me or are familiar with my work at all, you've heard me talk about the ego. It's, it's a big thing of, of what I talk about. And, you know, the ego is basically the protective mechanism that forms early on in life when we experience separation from our mother, when we experience any kind of coldness or fear or rejection or and, and a lot of these experiences happen when we're so young, we don't even have language to describe them. They're just feelings and emotional experiences. And we start to try to protect ourselves from these experiences. And that's the birth of the ego. And this happens like very, very young. Like, I mean, psychologists theorize that it happens at the moment of birth or at the moment the umbilical cord is cut. But regardless of when it actually happens, it's not so important. What's important is very, very early on, this primitive protective mechanism called the ego starts to form. And then what the ego does is it starts to try to control life, control the world, control circumstances and experiences and everything in a way to protect you from anything that it perceives as harmful or dangerous or scary or hurtful. And this is basically the foundation of our belief systems. Belief systems are something that ego creates to give a sense of control over life. Now, I want to say belief systems and and beliefs in general are always limiting. And you might think, well, a belief like I'm amazing, like that would be a good belief to have, right? Well, yes, in a way. I mean, it's better to believe that I'm amazing than it is to believe I'm a, you know, I'm horrible, right? But the thing is, is the moment you define something, you are limiting it. The moment you say something is this way, you are limiting the possibility that it could be any other way. And what happens with beliefs is we start to define how the world is, how other people are, how I am, how relationships are, how love is, how men are, how women are. We start to define the way things are. Most of the time we define it negatively. But even when we define it positively, it's still a limitation because basically what the ego is doing is it's trying to limit that thing into a fixed idea that I can then have some control over. And this is a survival process. Your authentic self, the spiritual self, the the empowered self, you know, there there are different ways to talk about it, but there there is something in you that is not the ego. There is something in you that is beyond the ego. There is something in you that is, you know, vibrant and full of life and empowered and confident and visionary and clear and connected and vulnerable. Like we all have that capacity within us and that capacity is limited by the ego 
and by the belief systems that the ego creates. So a belief like I am amazing is probably just a cover-up for a deep feeling of unworthiness. It's probably just a way of trying to protect yourself from something underneath that you don't want to realize or, or, or acknowledge. And what happens as you start to become more free, as you start to become more authentic in your true self, your belief systems just start to fall away because you don't need to cling to things so tightly. So instead of being like, it's like this, you're more like, maybe it's like this, maybe it's like that, maybe it's another way. I don't really, it doesn't really matter how it is. All I need to know is how I am in relationship to it. That's freedom, right? When you cannot worry about how things are, not worry about trying to control the outside world and just focus on how you want to show up in relationship to the outside world. That's freedom. That's power. But the ego wants to control the outside world and, and try to protect you from it. So what happens is we form, we form belief systems. And, you know, I would say just, just to start this conversation off, the fundamental belief that we, limiting belief that we all kind of have is this sense of I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. I'm, there's something wrong with me. Some version of that, right? We all, we all kind of have this fundamental feeling of not being worthy, not being enough. And, and it's, it maybe it starts as a feeling in very early childhood, but then it solidifies into an idea about who we are. You might ask, well, why do we all have this feeling? And it's because of how the world is. It's the world systematically installs this into every child. It's, it's just, it's just the way the world is right now. It's the way our parents were. It's the, it's where the world they came from, the generation they grew up in and what's been passed down. I mean, if you think about, I know this might be taking it a little far, but if you think about how insane this world is, it was only a few hundred years ago that people would gather in the streets to watch somebody get beheaded. And that was considered entertainment. And yes, we've come a little ways from that. You know, we're not there anymore. But we still got a lot of remnants from that hanging on. We still got a lot of traumatic stuff in our world. And we're traumatized by the marketing that, that says, you know, we don't look right or we don't, we don't act right or we need to buy this product or buy this thing to be better than we are or be, be enough. Or, you know, the, the movies that, and the, the media that gives us unrealistic representations of who we should be or how love should be or how our relationship should be. And then we hold ourselves to these impossible standards. And, and you know, like, yes, this is happening as adults, but this is also happening as children. And there's so much. I mean, we could spend all day talking about how we're traumatized and the different ways we're traumatized. But for this conversation, I'm just going to leave it at the world is traumatizing for all of us. And some of us grew up in better environments and we were less traumatized than others. Some of us grew up in worse environments and we were more traumatized, but all of us have been traumatized to some degree. The world does it. And because we've all been raised in this context of comparison, trying to be better than the person next to us and trying to please our parents and you know the different abuses and things we've gone through, because we've all been brought up in this context, we all have this fundamental belief that I am not enough or that I am not worthy or that someone else is better than me or that I need something outside myself to be better than I am and, and on and on and on. And this, this core belief 
kind of spider webs out into all our other beliefs. And it creates this belief structure that gives me a sense of identity, that gives me a sense of self, a sense of who I am. And all of my life choices and life experiences come out of this. They, they come out of this basic, like fundamental starting point. And what the ego wants to do is the ego wants to perpetuate these belief systems because this identity that I'm talking about is really the egoic identity or this, um, you know, this sense of self is really the egoic sense of self. And, you know, we're always trying to find things to add to our sense of self, whether it's like the clothes we wear or the jewelry we wear, we wear or the car we drive or the job we have or the relationship we have. But we're, we're trying to find these things that improve our status, that strengthen our sense of self, that make us feel more secure in who we are. But all of this stems from this belief that I'm not enough. So I feel like I'm not enough. And then I go collect a nice job and I go collect a nice relationship and I go wear some nice clothes and I make some money and I drive a nice car and I, and the people around me look at me and they go, Oh, look at Shane. He's so cool. And all of this serves to boost up my sense of self. But all this is doing is reinforcing the belief that I'm not enough. And I need all these things to be enough. Now, I want to say there's nothing wrong with these things. There's nothing wrong with having a good job. Nothing wrong with having money. Nothing wrong with having a nice car. But when you don't need these things, they have a lot less importance. It's like I'm doing this. I drive this car because I like this car, but I could just as easily drive another car, right? Or I do this work because it's meaningful for me. But if something happened, I could just as easily go do something else. Like there's, there's very little attachment to it. But when your identity is all caught up in it, our attachments are very strong. There's a lot of fear around all these things. And, and, and there's a lot of anxiety around it. And there's a lot of like trying to keep up with the people next to us or comparing ourselves to other people, or I need to get that promotion because if I get that promotion, I'm enough, or I need this person to want me because if this person wants me, then I'm enough. And there's a lot of attachment around it. And it, it's all, it's all stemming from this fundamental feeling of not being enough and wanting to s collect things outside myself to boost myself, to boost my identity. Now, what I'm describing here, this is not your life. This is the life of the ego. Now, I understand that the majority of human beings on this planet don't really know a life outside of the ego. Most of the human beings on this planet, they are, were completely immersed in our own ego, in our own identity, in our own, you know, needing to fill up our sense of self. But as you start to release that as you start to get in touch with these beliefs and release them what starts to happen is you you start to experience a life outside of that and you start to not cling so tightly to any of these things externally you start to be more filled up internally you start to live because of passion i live because of what i'm passionate about not to make up for some inadequacy that i feel inside Right. So I pursue things that fill me up because they fill me up, but I'm not pursuing anything to boost my identity or to make me feel like, you know, better about who I am. 
I, I might do things that bring me joy, but that's a different thing. So in early life, the ego is looking out at the world. It's looking at mom and dad, and it's looking at friends at school, and it's looking at the world around us and all these things, and it's defining things. And the definitions that it gives things gives it a sense of control over them, gives it a sense of power over them. You know, we, we do this with people, actually. We say, you know, this person is this kind of person, right? This person is an asshole, or this person's a narcissist, or this person's a cheater, or this, or this is a nice person, right? But we do this, and like, it's funny, like we do that and we think we know the person. You don't know anybody. You only know what they're letting you see. You know, I mean, I'm constantly like getting to, to know my wife. Like I'm constantly finding things I didn't even know about her. And we've been married for years. So it's, we, you don't really know people. But when you define somebody, it gives you a, a sense of control over them. It gives you a sense of feeling like I have some control in this relationship. And it's actually a very dangerous thing to do in relationships because when you start doing that, it's the end of the relationship is usually coming. But that's, I digress, that's a little bit different topic. But in early life, the ego starts to define people, it starts to define things, and the defining of them gives it a feeling of control, a feeling of power, a feeling of importance, a feeling of relevance, and all, all these things. And then what starts to happen is because of how we have defined things, we start to adjust our behavior to act in accordance with these things. And this is what I call behavioral adaptations. But it's basically like, you know, I give an example that in my book, I say that on a first date, you might have an impulse to ask a particularly intimate question. You know, you might have an impulse to share something vulnerable. You might have an impulse to to do something, right? Like let's say it's your first date with someone and maybe you really like them. And maybe you have this impulse to ask the question or to do the thing or to say the thing. And then you don't do it. And why don't you do it? Because in your mind, in your egoic mind, you say, well, what if they don't like it? Or what if that's weird? Or what if what if that pushes them away? Or, or what if they judge me for it? Or what if that reveals something about me that I don't want them to see? And on and on and on. But what happens is this intuitive impulse, this authentic impulse comes up that says, hey, do this. And we could say those authentic impulses actually come from the authentic self, right? Those, those simple, clear, do this, do that without a lot of drama around it. Those are usually intuitive impulses that come from the authentic self. But then the ego with its fear inserts itself in there and it says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't listen to your intuition. Don't follow that impulse. If you do that, something bad is going to happen. And so maybe on that first date, you don't ask that question or you don't say or do that thing. What we don't realize is that you asking that question or saying or doing that thing might be the very thing that creates a deeper connection with this person. Like, like that might be your own wisdom on a level you don't even fully understand, giving you the direction on how to connect with this person in the way you want to. But you don't listen to that because of your own egoic fear. And so you actually block off that opportunity for connection, that opportunity to further the intimacy. Or 
Maybe that question that you wanted to ask, maybe it wasn't the thing that was going to deepen the connection. Maybe it was the thing that was going to reveal that you're wasting your time here and that this isn't a relationship you want to pursue. But again, you didn't have the courage to do it because your ego got involved with all its fear and said, no, 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 don't do that. And so what happens is we disconnect from our authentic self. We disconnect from our intuitive impulses and we rely on our ego, our, our egoic mind for safety and security and to tell us what to do. And what the ego promises you, and this is what's so seductive about it, is the ego promises, just listen to me and you'll get what you want. And so the ego says, no, 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 don't ask that question because if you ask that question, you're not gonna get what you want. But in reality, the ego is not trying to get you what you want. The ego is actually trying to maintain the status quo, right? The ego doesn't want you to find love. The ego wants you to seek for love. It wants you to keep dating. It wants you to think that love will happen, but it also wants to like, it also wants to limit relationships to such a degree that love can never actually emerge because love is very scary to the ego. Like love requires a level of vulnerability and intimacy and depth that actually dissolves the ego to a degree. Like you cannot, you cannot have authentic love and have your ego remain intact. Like love, as you start to open up to it, it actually dissolves the ego. So what the ego wants you to do is it wants you to seek, it wants you to search, it wants you to strive, it wants you to try. It wants you to have these really intense experiences where you're like, oh my God, I've, I've never felt like this before. It's like my face is melting and you know, whatever. Like, it's like, you know, like I'm so in love with this person. I'm so, but it doesn't really amount to anything, right? The ego wants you to have these intense experiences and it wants you to like get really high and then really low and then really high and then really low and then back and forth and back and forth. The ego's okay with all of that as long as you don't actually find love. You know, a lot of times I'll just, I'll throw this in real quick because I think it's relevant. A lot of times when I'm coaching somebody, what we work on is the willingness to stop chasing these intense experiences. Because a lot of times when you find love, it doesn't show up as a, oh my God, this is so intense. My face is melting kind of thing. It doesn't show up like that. It shows up like, a, this is interesting. It shows up like a curiosity. It shows up like, a, I, I want to know more. I feel something here. And that's actually very scary to the ego, that kind of feeling. Because that kind of feeling actually is going to have you go into a relationship and not lose your cool about it. It's going to have you remain in your power. You know, if you're like, oh my God, this is so intense. I love this person so much. I've never felt like this. You're basically going to throw all your reservations out the window and just dive in with them. And, and that's not going to end well for you 99% of the time. But when you're like, this is interesting. I want to know more. I want to explore here. I want to find out what's here. Like that is going to actually have you explore the relationship in a grounded, 
healthy, empowered way. And love usually emerges from that place. So the ego is not taking you where you want to go. The ego is always taking you off track. And your authentic impulses, those things that come from your heart that say, just do this and trust. Just ask that question. Just invite that person to do that thing and, and just trust the outcome. Right? It's okay. Whatever happens, it's okay. Like that is the intuition saying, hey, it's okay. Just trust me. This is going to be fine. And the ego is going to say, no, 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 don't do that. You got to strategize a little bit more. You got to think a little bit more. And so what the ego is doing is it's adapting your behavior to fit in with its beliefs, to fit in with the definitions that it's given life and given the world. Now, this is where it gets really, really insidious. And this is, this is where we have a big problem that we've really got to look at. Is we actually get rewards for listening to the ego. In my book, I talk about how there are four basic ego motivations. Uh, the need to be in control. The need to be right the need to get validation and approval, and the need to uh, have security and comfort. So these are the four basic ego motivations. And all four of these are isolating and they are limiting. So the ego is perfectly okay with you getting involved in relationships as long as you remain right about all your beliefs, as long as you remain in control of the situation, as long as you feel secure and comfortable the entire time, and as long as this relationship is validating you and giving you the approval you need. As, and according to the ego, that is all relationships are for. And this is why I say, this is why I say uh, the ego does not want you to fall in love. The ego does not want you to find real love because real love challenges all four of those motivations. Real love is like dynamite to all of those motivations. Like, when you're in love, like you, you lose control to a degree. You know, when you are, when you are in love, like your security and your comfort are threatened. And I mean, that could be confusing. I want to say like, if your security and your comfort are threatened in a real way for long term, you're in a very toxic relationship. But intimacy does threaten your security and your comfort. It, it stretches the boundaries of what you're comfortable with. Um, you know, there are going to be times in relationships, authentic relationships, when you are not going to get validated or get the approval that you're looking for. In fact, a, a real intimate relationship is sometimes going to call out the things that you don't want to look at and you're going to feel a lack of validation or a lack of approval. And the relationship is going to call you into a different level, right? So all of these things, um, you know, being right about your belief systems, which is something we're going to talk about a lot today, is... Being right about your belief systems is something that every true love relationship will challenge because most of our beliefs actually disconnect us from true love. So love is always going to threaten the ego. It's always going to conflict with its motivations. And the ego is always going to try to maintain its motivations. It's always going to try to keep chasing them. So when you start to step into intimacy with somebody, the ego is going to say, no, 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 don't do that. You've got to strategize first. You've got to go about it this way or go about it that way or go about it the other way. And, and that's going to take you off track.
But the insidious part about this is what I was saying is that you get rewarded for listening. So the ego tries to take you off track. And if you listen, you get rewarded for it. And this is what in psychology is called secondary gains or what, what I usually call payoffs. But they're these sneaky little rewards that you get for listening to the ego. And you could think about rewards, these rewards. Uh, last week, I did an episode on instant gratification. These rewards often fall into the category of instant gratification. These rewards fall into the category of taking a simple high or a simple thrill right now and missing out on long-term creative potential or long-term value or long-term like having my dreams come true, right? So I take this simple thrill, this simple hit of validation or fun or excitement or feeling good about myself. I take this little hit now and then I sell out on long-term creative potential as a result. So I want to, I want to just give some examples here. Um, and I'm pulling this right from my book, what I've been writing about. So some examples of payoffs are getting attention, getting sympathy, being understood, feeling like you have the upper hand, playing the victim, feeling superior, feeling smart, getting off the hook, uh, not being or having to be responsible, looking good for others, the ability to manipulate things, being liked or accepted, having sex, gaining power, feeling justified, and being wanted by someone. So all of these are examples of payoffs that you might get. And so what the ego does is it says, don't ask that question that might lead to deeper intimacy with this person. But instead, do something that's going to get them to validate you. And rather than moving into deeper intimacy, maybe you say something about yourself that's going to boost your ego. A lot of, a lot of women um, have asked me, like, why do men always talk about themselves on a date? <laughs> this is why. And again, like, for, for if, if any guys are, are listening to this, don't talk about yourself on a date. I mean, you could say some things about yourself, but ask questions, you know, ask about the other person. But I've gotten this question from women a lot. It's like, why do men always talk about themselves? And women probably do it too, to a degree. I don't know. But, but you know, you know the, the thing is, is like the intimacy is actually in asking the questions. It's in getting to know someone else. It's in that revealing. It's in that sharing. It's in that mutual exchange. And when there is a fear of intimacy there, it's easier to just talk about myself the whole time. Let me tell you all the great things about myself that are going to make you think I'm cool, that are going to make you think I'm smart, that are going to make you think I'm talented, that are going to make me attractive to you. Okay, someone says as a lesbian, women do that too. Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad it's not just men. So that is the easy way out when you're afraid of intimacy, right? That's the easy way out when you're afraid of intimacy. Let me just talk about myself. Let me just boost my own ego. Let me just show you, tell you how great I am. And hopefully I'll get your approval that way, right? And what the ego does is it says trade intimacy for approval. Trade intimacy for validation. Limit what you actually want and get this pathetic payoff instead. And the problem is, is we don't see the payoffs as pathetic. We don't see them as valueless. 
And so, you know, for a lot of us, when we're dating, having the upper hand in a relationship seems like a really valuable thing. It's like, I want the person to want me more than I want them. I want to be able to call the shots. I want to be able to direct things. I want to, you know, I want to have, I want to have the upper hand. And what having the upper hand is really about is about protecting yourself from pain. That's what it's really about. I mean, there's not, it's not deeper than that. Okay. If I have the upper hand, you can't hurt me. And so we perceive that as being valuable. But having the upper hand is valueless. It, it means nothing. It is fucking useless, actually. And I always say when I coach someone, I say, give away the upper hand. It's actually more valuable to give away the upper hand and see how the other person does by having it. Right? That's going to reveal a lot. If I, if I give you the upper hand, hey, I want you to know that I really like you. I'm really into this and I would love to see where this goes. Right? Boom. I just handed you the upper hand. Now you know I like you, you know I'm interested, you know I want to see where it goes. And now if that other person gets all like, oh, all right, I got you on my hook now, I'm calling the shots. I'm like, awesome, you just revealed your hand, thank you for showing me who you are, I don't need to know anything more. Boom, I just gave you the upper hand, you revealed your hand, and now I'm done. Right? See, it's actually powerful to give away the upper hand. But the ego can't handle that. It's too scary. It's too intimate. It's too vulnerable. So let me hang on to it. And then I get this little ego trip, this little power trip of being in control of, oh, this person wants me more than I want them. Look at me. Look at how awesome I am. And it's really fucking pathetic. I mean, it's just really lame, actually. But we don't see it as lame when we're being run by the ego, when we're operating from these limiting beliefs. And so what the ego does is from, I'm just going to recap some of what I've talked about now. From the time we're born, from the time we start experiencing life, the ego starts framing and defining the world. And it does it in a way that protects us. Or actually, let me rephrase that. It does not protect us, but it tries to protect us. Actually, the only thing it does is prevent us from everything we want. But it tries to protect us. It's, it's operating from fear and its, its beliefs and its definitions of life are set up in a way that to make us feel safe. Then what it does is it adjusts our behavior to act in accordance with those beliefs. It limits our intuitive impulses and has us act out in inauthentic ways that reinforce our beliefs. Then what it does is it gives us pathetic, insignificant rewards like having the upper hand, like feeling smart or superior, like getting validation or approval, or like having someone want me. It gives me these valueless, pathetic rewards to keep me addicted to my belief systems. And this creates a perpetual cycle of never-ending inauthenticity. Every time... I get the payoffs for this. It strengthens my investment in these beliefs, which then strengthens me acting out in this inauthentic behavior, which then gets me more addicted to these insignificant payoffs, which then strengthens my investment in the beliefs, which then reinforces the behavior, 
which then keeps me more addicted to the payoffs, which then strengthens my investment in the beliefs, and on and on and on and on. I hope you can see how this works. And if you do not break this cycle, your beliefs will become more and more concrete, more and more solid. Your authentic experience of life will become more and more limited. And as the years go on, the level of intimacy in all your relationships will get lower and lower and lower. And you will become more and more and more isolated. And it doesn't matter if you're single or if you're married. There are people who have been married for 20 years and they have isolated themselves in their own egos and they don't even know each other and they don't even relate to each other and they have a transactional relationship. Okay, this is not about who you have in your life or how you have in your life. This is about your relationship with your own ego and your own belief systems. And if you don't challenge this, you will isolate yourself and you will be alone in life, whether you're married or not. Now, I want to give, um, I want to just give some examples here. In my book, what I do is I actually have a chart and I, I like columns and I go like, you know, life experiences, beliefs, um, behavioral adaptations and payoffs. And so I, I want to just walk through this chart with you. Obviously, if you're listening to the podcast, you're not going to be able to see it. Um, those of you on Instagram might be able to see it a little bit. I don't know. No, sorry. I'm not going to be able to show you. It doesn't work. Um, but what I want to do is just go through one by one because I want you to see how a life experience shapes a belief, shapes a behavior, which then creates a payoff, which then keeps the whole cycle going. So I'm just giving some general examples here. Now, I want to say, excuse me, I want to say that just because you had this life experience, like I'm going to give, I'm going to give several examples of life experiences that might have happened to people in childhood. Just because you might have had this life experience doesn't mean that you are going to act out in this way or that it would show up exactly this way for you. Okay, there are, there are a million factors at play here. So I'm just going to give you the I'm just going to give you an example of how it could play out. And then obviously depending on your unique situation or what might have happened for you, it could play out very differently. But I just want to go through these so everybody can get an idea of how these this all works together. So as an example of a life experience, say my mother compared me to other children. A belief that might have formed from that I'm not as good as others, right? So if as a little child, my mother is comparing me to other children, you know, oh, well, why don't you dress as nice as that little girl? Or why don't, you know, you should do your hair like that or you should lose weight or whatever. You know, maybe as a child, my mother is looking at the other kids around me and, and drawing comparisons. A belief that might develop from that is that I am not as good as others, right? There's something about me that is less than others. Now, a behavioral adaptation that could come out of that belief is that I people please and I over accommodate. A payoff that I would get from that is that I get approval, people like me and I feel needed. So just if you think about that, my mother compares me to other children. That develops the belief that I'm not as good as other people. 
as I grow up, as I live my life, I develop a habit or a pattern of people pleasing and over accommodating for people. And the payoff I get from that is people like me, I get approval from them and I feel needed by people. Now, if the approval and the people liking me and me feeling needed isn't amounting to joy in my life, isn't amounting to deep, intimate connection in my life, it's not giving me more of what I want in life or what I desire in life, then that is useless to me. Like that is completely useless to me. It offers me nothing. But I'll get addicted to it anyway. And I'll keep striving for wanting people to like me, wanting their approval, having that feeling of being needed. And I will do it even at the cost of nobody respects me and they see me as a tool to be used for their enjoyment, right? So what often happens to people pleasers is nobody respects us and they, they see us as a tool that they can use for their enjoyment, right? Oh, this person will do anything I want them to. Let me call them up in the middle of the night to come over, right? Like this person will just, they're just so desperate for that love or that attention that they'll just do anything for it. And this is what often happens to people pleasers is they end up feel in a situation where nobody respects them. I'm just going to give a couple more examples. Um, let's say I grew up with very little money in the family. Let's, let's go with that one. I grew up with very little money in the family. That could show up as a belief that I deserve less than others. Now, how might that show up as a behavioral adaptation? I only go after sure things. I don't take risks or expand my horizons. And the payoff I get from that is I never experience failure and I look like a success to people. So if I grew up with very little money in the family and I develop a belief that I deserve less than other people, that might cause me to live a very safe, secure life. I go for the sure job, the sure bet, the sure relationship, the sure everything, right? I, and I, I never expand my horizons. I never take any risks. I never put myself out there in a vulnerable way. And on the surface, I never experience failure and I look like a success to people. Under the surface, my life is very small and it looks good on the outside, but on the inside, it is empty and soul crushing. Great example of trading in my truth, my authentic expression, the life I really want to live for an insignificant payoff that gives me a small hit of validation or feeling good, but gives me nothing in reality. Um, let me take one more example. I'm not gonna, I, I give a bunch of these in the book, but I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, the boys or girls at school were more interested in others. Let's just take that one. So maybe, maybe when I was young or, you know, when I got to an age where I started dating or when we started having boyfriends and girlfriends or whatever that looked like, um, the boys or girls at school were not as interested in me as they were in others. Maybe that's an experience some of us had. Now, a belief that could emerge from that is that I am not sexy or attractive. Now, what might be a behavioral adaptation that would form, that would come from that belief? I become promiscuous and over-focused on my sexuality. 
Now, that's not a guarantee. There are lots of ways that belief could show up, but that is one way that it could show up. Now, what would be the payoff I get from that? I get attention, connection, and validation. People want me. But there's also a cost. What's the cost? People enjoy sex with me, but they don't take me seriously for a relationship. Okay, now again, I'm not saying this is the fact that's going to happen for everybody, but this is a possibility. And the point here is to recognize that the beliefs that we hold shape our behaviors. We adjust our behaviors to fit in with our beliefs. We get these insignificant rewards for these. And then we, and then we sell out the true experience we want to have in life for these insignificant rewards. I see somebody asking about the title of the book. Um, the title of the book is Inspired Love, but just, just so everybody's clear, I'm actually writing it now. So it's not, it's not available yet. I, I plan to release it next year. So my, my goal is to have the rough draft done by the end of the year. Um, so yes, thank you for asking. Title of the book is Inspired Love and it will be available sometime next year. But all of you are getting like sneak previews as we have these conversations. So I, I don't want to go through all the examples, but I wanted to go through a few of them because I just wanted you to start to understand the relationship between all of this. The ego defines things in a way that make it feel safe, make it feel comfortable, make it feel in control. We then adjust our behavior to match those beliefs. And then we get these insignificant payoffs to reinforce our beliefs. And this creates an addictive cycle that perpetuates itself endlessly. Now, I've seen quite a few questions coming in. I want to open up for questions in just a moment. But before I do, I, I just want to mention, like, so what do we do about this, right? How, how do we break this down? I mean, I think really like the short answer is that you've got to get in touch with your beliefs. You've got to familiarize yourself with how they're operating. You've got to start to understand where you are acting out in behavioral adaptations rather than what's your authentic, true behavior that would come if you weren't operating from fear. Um, you've got to identify what the payoffs are that you're addicted to and develop the willingness to stop being addicted to those. And you've literally got to make choices in the moment when you see that you could act out to try to get that payoff, you've got to see that system operating and then choose against it. I'll say that again. In the moment, when you see yourself operating from those payoffs, or when you see it come up, I'll go back to the example I gave earlier about maybe you're on a date with someone and you have this authentic impulse to ask a certain question or to, to say a certain thing. And then your ego gets involved and says, no, 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 don't do that. Do this instead, right? Well, that would be the moment when you had the opportunity to be authentic and you sold out your authenticity for a payoff, right? Instead of opening up for more depth and more vulnerability, let me just cut it off and go into my survival mechanism. So let me just cut it off and try to get a payoff instead. In that moment, when you see that happening, that's when you've got to actually choose against it. Now, a lot of this, I mean, this just requires getting to know yourself and getting to know how you operate below the surface. Recognizing that, as I said in the beginning, you're not just making conscious choices all the time, but that the 
the choices you seem to make are actually being driven by forces that are operating underneath. And so, you know, it seems like, oh, well, I chose not to say that and say this instead, but you didn't really choose that. You just, you just defaulted survival. You just defaulted to your behavioral adaptation to try to get some kind of payoff that's going to make you feel safe or make you feel secure, but you didn't really move towards love. So, you know, I, I think I'll, I think I'll end with that in terms of what do we do about it? Because, you know, to, to know what to do about this, you, you've got to get to know yourself. This is where, this is where therapy is incredibly helpful. This is where, you know, coaching is incredibly helpful. Um, and I mean, all forms of personal growth are incredibly helpful in this sense, because this is getting you familiarized with yourself and your thoughts, your beliefs, and how you operate. Okay, so um, I've seen a lot of questions come in. I want to I want to go through and just take a quick look at them and see what people have been asking. I haven't been able to read through them all while I've been talking. Um, but I'm going to go through and take as many questions as I can now. Okay, this is this is a question actually I want to I want to address here. It's a great question. Okay. What did you mean when you said the end of the relationship was is near when we say what someone is like? And I want to I want to answer this question because this is this is the trickiest ego dynamic of all, I think. Um it's it's one of the one of the worst ones. So many of you have heard me speak about a course in miracles, and a course in miracles is something I've been studying for many years. Um, it it talks a lot about relationships, like in like the deep psychodynamics of relationships and how the ego is involved with them. And in the course, it, it defines something called a special relationship. So most of you probably hear that, like, oh, I want a special relationship. It's not a good thing, actually. Um, so the ego is motivated by specialness. And what specialness basically is, I know specialness sounds like a good thing. It's like we all want to be special. But what specialness really is, is the desire to be better than others, right? When we want to be special, it's I want to have something special. I want to have something more than others, I want to have, you know, something other people don't. I want to be better than others in some way. I want to have some kind of edge. I want to have some kind of superiority. I want to have some kind of special knowledge or special attractiveness or special whatever. But it's it's all about separating yourselves from others. It's all about separating yourselves from ourselves, from other people and, and life as a whole. And it's it's a it's one of the ways the ego protects itself is by is through isolation. And it, it isolates through specialness. So the special relationship, the way the course talks about it, is that the, the ego will use relationships to boost its own identity, to boost its own sense of specialness. And it shows up like this. If you want me, that makes me special, right? So if you want me, all of a sudden I'm special. And the ego kind of gets high on being wanted. But what happens in this special relationship dynamic is other people become a pawn in our games. Other people become tools for validation 
rather than like authentic human beings with their own reality, their own feelings. And so when I made that comment, I said the end of the relationship is near when we start to say what someone is like. What we do is we define people and we don't relate with them as they are. We relate with them as we've defined them. And then the reality is blocked out of out from this person. So I want to talk about a common way. Uh, uh, hold on. What I, what I meant to say there is the reality of this person is blocked out from our awareness because we're not really seeing them. We're only relating with our definition of them. One of the most common ways this shows up, and this is something probably everybody will be able to relate to, is that when we start dating someone and when we really like them, and like, I want to own this, okay? I have done this in every single one of my relationships. I've done this with my wife. I still continue to do this with my wife at times. And I've got to like take a step back and be like, stop it, okay? So this isn't an accusation that like you're wrong for doing this. This is something that we want to realize we all do and start becoming aware of it so we cannot do it so much. Because when we like someone, you know, when we have those feelings for them, when we want them, when that starts to emerge within us, this is like, this is how the special relationship starts. We start to project onto them all the ways that they could make our fantasy of love come true. Oh, they're so sexy. Oh, they're so smart. Oh, they're so this. Oh, they're so that. Oh, they said this. They did this. I've never felt this way. We start to project onto them all of our fantasies of how they could make our fantasies of love come true. And then anything that this person reveals that doesn't fit in with our fantasy, we put it out of our awareness, right? So those of you who ignore red flags, this is why you do it, okay? Ignoring red flags is all about the special relationship because here's the thing. If I'm, if I'm, in, if I'm using this person to make myself feel special. That's harsh, I know. Some of you think, I don't use people. Well, if you're blocking out the reality of someone so you can stay in relationship with them because being in relationship with them makes you feel better, you are using that person. I hate to break it to you. I know you might not think of yourself that way. I know you might not think that that's what you do. But if you do that, you are using people. You are using people to make yourself feel better. So when you start getting to know somebody and you like them and you want to be with them and you're excited about them and, and you start going, oh my God, if we could be together, it would be so amazing and it would be like this and it would be like that and it would be like the other thing. And, and you project all your fantasies onto them and you start making this person responsible for all your fantasies of love coming true. Then what happens is you block out anything that doesn't fit in with that fantasy and, and you just only relate with this person as you've defined them. Now, ultimately, what's going to happen if you continue on this track is you will end up hating each other. Because both of your fantasies at some point, and by the way, it's not just you doing this to them. They're also doing it to you. I promise. It, it's, it's happening with everybody. But what's eventually going to happen if you keep pounding forward on this track is you will hate each other because eventually the reality of both of you will become so much that you can't possibly hold on to the fantasy anymore. And then what we do is we say, I never even knew you at all. 
I, I never even knew who you were. And we accuse them of lying to us about how they were. Now, I, I get it. Sometimes people do lie to us about how they are. But more, but more often, this is what happens. So yes, sometimes people might be lying about who they are. But more often, this is what happens. Is you didn't want to see who they were. Because seeing who they were would have meant you had to stop living out your fantasy. And this is why uh, my, uh, a mentor of mine said it like this so beautifully. Is a guy named Barry Warren. He's like an old New Yorker. Uh, if you, I shouldn't call him old. He, he, he's, he's an older man. He's not old, but he's an older man. Uh, but he's like this, he's, like, he's from like New York back in the day. And he's, he's amazing. But he, he said it like this. He's like, you know, two people, he goes, two threes dress themselves up like tens. And they go out to the club and they think they found another 10. But then they get home and take all their clothes off and they realize that they're just two threes and then they get mad at each other about it. <laughs> and I, I just, when I heard that, it was like the best thing I ever heard. I was like, it's so true. It is so true. And, you know, so, so to answer the question, that's what I meant. That's what I meant when I said that is that, you know, if you are unwilling to be with the reality of the person and you're just projecting your fantasy onto them and just trying to force them into your fantasy, you will end up hating them and they will end up hating you. And that will be the end of the relationship. And that's what I meant when I said that. So thank you for asking that question because that is an awesome question. So someone asks, aren't there more people in the world that are unaware of this cycle than the people who are? How do they find healthy relationships? They don't. It's just a simple answer. They don't. So yes, most of the world is unaware of these things. And if you haven't noticed, the world is fucking insane because it is unaware of these things. Look, like if we, if we were not unaware of these things, or excuse me, if we were aware of these things, we wouldn't need to like drop bombs on each other and shit. We would just deal with our own discomfort. We would just deal with our own triggers. But because we don't know how to deal with our own stuff, we got to go to war about it, right? Like, I mean, like think about most of the wars in history have been holy or religious wars. Nothing holy about them. But most of them have been religious wars. And they've been about, if you think about what a religious war is, I hope I'm not getting too philosophical for everybody. But if you think about what a religious war is, it is our need to force our beliefs on another person. Like, this is the ego right here. This is the ego. The ego is the need to be right. I, I said earlier, one of the core motivations of the ego is the need to be right. We are literally fighting wars, raiding and invading and killing people to be right about our beliefs. I get it. There are other motivations. There are control and manipulation, but all of that's part of the ego. It's all fear-based. Our need to be in control of things, our need to, you know, own the resources, our need to spread our beliefs. These are all ego motivations. And so you ask, like, whatever's happening on the microcosm is also happening on the macrocosm. So you might say, Shane, what the fuck does war have to do with me finding love? It has everything to do with it. Because the same thing that's happening on the big scale is happening on the small scale in your life. Because it's our collective ego doing it on the big scale and it's your personal ego doing it on the small scale. And you cannot have healthy love if your ego is running the show. Now, let me say, 
I have an ego. I have not transcended my ego. I don't want to present myself as somebody who has. My wife has an ego. She has not transcended her ego. We don't present ourselves to be people who have. But our egos do not run our relationship. We consistently in our relationship put our egos aside. And our egos cause problems in our relationship. And when they do, we fight about it. And then we've got to put our egos aside and come back to a place of love. And we've been doing that consistently for years. And hopefully we're getting better at it. I think we are. I think we are. But it takes time, you know. And hopefully, you know, 10 years from now, maybe maybe there will be very little ego that's present in our relationship. So, yes, this is not something that you think like, oh, I, I've heard people ask before, like, oh, well, clearly not everybody has to do this because not everybody's doing the work. Everybody has to do it in some way. Now, maybe there were people who had less trauma than you for whatever reason. You know, there are people who are just naturally like a little more secure. Maybe they've had more past lifetimes than you. I don't know. You know like, you know, maybe there, maybe there's something about them that it comes a little more naturally to them than it does for you. Maybe you've got to work at it a little more than some people. But but none of us none of us are free of this. Like none of us can just let our egos have free reign and think we're going to be happy in love and in our life. It doesn't work that way. So, you know, maybe some people have it a little bit easier in some respects. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. You've just got to focus on you and the work you need to do. Um, okay, um, Jadet145 has a question. She says, going through a divorce, his behavior is acting single when he's married. How do I deal with that? Well, I mean, the only thing, if you're going through a divorce because he's acting single when he's married, then it sounds like you've already determined that the behavior that was showing up in the relationship is not okay with you. It's not, it's not part of the relationship that you want. It's not something you're going to live with. So you've done that part. That, that was the first part. You've done that. But, you know, at this point, like if, you've, if you're choosing to leave, then you've got to let him be who he wants to be. Like you married him and, and maybe you can look back and, you know, explore why you married him. You know, maybe there were things that you overlooked in the beginning and maybe not. I don't know. But... I know one thing, there's a lot to learn from this experience, no matter how, no matter which way you cut it. And so what you want to do now is stop judging his behavior or what he's doing because you've already decided that it's not for you. And that's as far as you can go with it. I mean, you can sit there and judge him for the rest of your life if you want to. I mean, I'm not going to tell you you can't. If you want to, you can, but it will do nothing for you. You've already decided it's not for you. So go through the divorce. Give him the freedom to go be the person he wants to be. However he wants to be. You know, that, that's why you're divorcing him. is So you can do that. So you don't have to be a part of it anymore. And yes, I understand you probably have a lot of emotional pain and emotional trauma from having been in this marriage. 
And you need to turn your attention towards healing that. You know, at some point you want to learn how to forgive all of this. So, so it cannot weigh on you anymore. Um, you want to start to clarify what you want your future to look like, what your path to getting there is going to be and how you create that for yourself or how you will create that for yourself. So, you know, in, in your question, you're asking how you deal with his behavior. You divorce him. That's how you deal with his behavior, by divorcing him. And everything that happens after the divorce is on you. It's your job to heal the pain and the trauma that came from the marriage. It's your job to learn the lessons that this marriage offers you. It's your job to figure out what you want the rest of your life to look like and to figure out how to move towards it. And any amount of looking back at him or judging him, I'm not going to say you're wrong to do it. It's not about right or wrong, but it's holding you back from the life you could have. It's, it's just, it's not helping you is what I'm saying. And so at some point you've got to decide for yourself, do I want to move on with my life or do I want to stay in this marriage even though we're divorced? And that's, that's going to be your work. And I'm giving you the straight truth right now, but please don't hear my directness as a lack of compassion because I get it's hard. I get it. I, 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 it's probably harder than most anything I've been through in my life. So I don't even want to say I know what it's like, but you've got to choose. Are you going to move forward or are you going to stay in this marriage even though you're going through a divorce? Lots of love to you as you navigate this, figure that out. That, that's a tough one. Um, Miss Regal Ree asks, what childhood experience could cause people to not be sensitive to others' feelings? Well, we are not sensitive to others' feelings because of trauma, because of our own pain, right? I, I said in the beginning of this, I said, we've all been traumatized, right? We're, we're traumatized by our parents. We're traumatized by our classmates. We're traumatized by our teachers. We're traumatized by the media and, and the, you know, like we're traumatized by so much. And, you know, when, when I say traumatized, I mean, some of us might think of trauma as being like severely beat or raped or something like that. And that's definitely trauma. But trauma takes many forms. And, you know, trauma is really anything that has you shut down aspects of who you are. It's, it's anything, trauma is anything that has you turn to the ego for guidance rather than relying on your authentic self. And so, yes, we've all been traumatized and because we're hurt, because we're suffering, we, we close ourselves off. We're not so open. We're not so vulnerable. We're not so available. And that causes us to not be sensitive to others' feelings. Now, I'm just going to say one more thing here. I assume you're asking this question. I could be wrong about this, but, but what I hear in this question is that you're involved with someone who is not sensitive to your feelings. And if that's the case, like, I would ask, why are you involved with someone like that? You know, what is that, what is that about for you? And, you know, if you are doing what I was talking about earlier of projecting your fantasies onto this person, 
and ignoring the things that don't fit because you want to continue to hang on to this validation or this companionship or whatever you're getting from this relationship, that's on you. That's not on that person. You know, I want to say this for everybody. We've really got to stop getting involved with people who aren't operating at the standard of relationship we want and then being mad at them for it. Like, cut it out, people. And I say that with love. But like, you know, like, that's on you. That is so on you. And I've done it. You know, I mean, I, I was... I've shared this story many times and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about it, but I, I mean, I remember, I remember meeting this woman when I was 21 years old and she was 40 and she said all the right things and she rocked my world and she brought me breakfast in bed and, and I was just like, this is the one in my naivety, in my, in my lack of exposure and lack of experience. And you know, in retrospect, I see now like she was a straight up narcissist. And, and then as I looked at how our relationship unfold, unfolded, I was so mad at her for being the way she was. And the, the manipulative games she would pull and the lies and the drama. And I, and I was like, I'm just trying to love you. Like, how can you be so evil? And, you know, when I look back at that, I didn't want to see who she was because, you know, like people in her life was telling me who, like literally her friends and people she knew were telling me like, you got to cut her loose. Like this is not going to end well for you. I did not want to see who she was because if I was willing to see who she was, that meant I couldn't keep getting all the payoffs that I was getting from her. And like, you know, at the time I might've felt like a victim, but now I own that. Like I did that. Like there were other options for me, but I didn't want to be alone. I didn't want to do the work, I, you know, like at that. And I'll say this too. At that point in my life, that was the level of relationship I was available for. Because that was where my worthiness was at. That was where my confidence was at. That was where my all of it, right? Like all, all how I see myself, if we're talking about beliefs here, where where my belief systems currently were, that's what I believed I could have. And so because of that, that's what I settled for. That's what I tolerated. That's what I accepted. And I didn't want to go be alone and do the work by myself to figure out how worthy I was and to break through those things. And, you know, like I didn't want to go do that. I just wanted to be with her and have her be nice to me and have it all work out and live happily ever after. And I'll say this, something I've come to learn about life, about the world, about the universe, is that we're not here to just live happily ever after. We're here to do some work. We're here to evolve. We're here to grow. Like, I actually believe this life is a classroom and relationships, especially romantic, intimate relationships are one of our greatest lessons in life. And yes, it is possible for everybody to create a deeply loving, fulfilling, passionate, connected relationship. 
But that does not happen by just going out and meeting someone and hooking up and trying to live happily ever after. That happens by doing the inner work. And and, and what I found is this too, and this has been my experience and it's also the experience I have with clients, is there is a certain amount of work that is needed as a single person before you get into a relationship. And you might date, and, and let me say this, not before you get into a relationship, but before you find your lifetime relationship, right? There's a certain amount of work that needs to be done as a single person, dating, getting in and out of relationships. Actually, let me say this. I, I looked at one day, I sat down and I looked at every significant relationship I had had before my wife. And I realized that each one gave me a potent and powerful lesson. And I'm going to share what each of those were right now. The first one was the narcissist I just spoke about. The only time I've ever been with somebody I would say was like a legit narcissist. Um, That was the first one. And the lesson I learned in that relationship was how to leave a bad relationship, right? How to recognize this relationship is not good for me and it's time to leave. That was my biggest lesson from that relationship. After that, I was settling with someone who was nice, but not what I wanted. I wasn't in love and I had to learn to not settle, right? Like literally I spent a year with this person thinking to myself, maybe this is just how it is. You know, maybe, maybe it's not all intense and stuff. You know, maybe I'm not supposed to have these strong feelings. Maybe I'm just supposed to find a nice person and be with them for the rest of my life. But I, I like, I had no love for this person. I mean, I had, I had love for her in a general way, but I, I was, I was not in love with her. And I had to learn that that was not enough. That was that lesson. Um, Next lesson I learned was uh, there was there was somebody that was like kind of stringing me along and, and like breadcrumbing me. I had to learn not to be breadcrumbed, right? Um, there was there was somebody who I, I dated who um, we were together for about a year and we had a really good relationship, by far the best relationship I ever was in. And I ended up ending it with her because we were fundamentally not compatible. And this was a huge lesson. And I struggled with it a long time because I was like, it's such a good relationship. You know, there are so many things about it that are great. And there's so much potential here. And, and like, and like, it didn't logically make sense to me to leave it. And yet at the same time in my heart, I knew that this was not right. And I had to learn to trust that even though I logically couldn't understand why. I had to learn to like trust my heart on that. And in retrospect, I, I found out why. But at the time I didn't know and I had to learn to trust myself on that. Um, the next relationship, significant relationship, and this was the last one before I met my wife, was I was involved with this woman who was, uh, she wanted to have an open relationship. And I had always kind of thought that like, yeah, that's spiritual, you know, and that's whatever, whatever I thought at the time about it, not how I feel about it now. But at the time I thought, you know, yeah, like we should be open, you know, we shouldn't have to tie each other down and we shouldn't, I had a lot of, I had a lot of misinterpretations about what a committed relationship is at the time. Um, But, you know, I was in an open relationship and, and I had to learn that that was not what I wanted. 
And then right after that was when I met my wife. So I share this to share that I realized that every single experience I had before I met my wife was a was a powerful and important lesson. And I had to learn each of those lessons before I was ready to be with my wife. Actually, I want to say one other thing. Um, something else I learned in that open relationship, which I think was, was very, very profound. And, and by the way, each of these relationships held many lessons. I'm just kind of distilling one big one from each relationship. But one thing that, uh, one thing that I learned in the open relationship was how to self-soothe. And that was so, so, so important. And, and that was, that was actually, I think the thing that allowed me to create the relationship with my wife because we were long distance for three years and I didn't know where she was. I didn't know what she was doing. We would only talk once a day. We wouldn't see each other for weeks at a time. And I had to like self-soothe and trust this relationship. And that's something I learned to do while I was in that open relationship because it was the same thing. She was seeing other people. She was, I mean, my wife wasn't seeing other people, but the, the woman before was seeing other people and she was doing other things and there was no commitment and there was no communication. And I had to learn to self-soothe while she was out doing whatever she was doing and learn to be okay with that. And that was huge for me, learning how to do that, learning how to not cling to other people for things, but just let them, let them be what they are, let them do what they do. And and yes, I can sit back and see who they are and see what they do and determine how I want to be in relationship with it, but not needing to reach out to them for it. Okay, so Monica Marie Moreau says, where is the line between choosing to focus on strengths and positives and projecting slash blocking out aspects that don't fit in with your fantasy? Well, I know this probably doesn't answer your question, but I want to say the line is the line. Okay, so there is, there is paying attention to what's actually showing up, and then there is ignoring what's actually showing up. Now, with any person, even, even a narcissist, right? Like, you're probably going to see positive things and negative things. Like, every person is going to bring positive things to the table and negative things. And the positive things you can accept and say, okay, these are positive things. That's fine. But the negative things, you know, and what would some examples of negative things be? Negative things would be like being wishy-washy around like what they want or where they see this going or, you know, something like that. Like not willing to give you clear answers. Um, other negative things like inconsistency. You know, or like having mix-ups in their stories. You know, they say one thing and then it turns out something else was true, right? Or, or just not being engaged or interested, not trying to plan dates, not, you know, like, or only calling you last minute. Like, I'm just going with some common dating stuff. But I mean, I think we're all pretty aware of what negative things are. So, you know, the thing is, is like, yeah, acknowledge the positive things. Wow, this person's really friendly. Wow, this person has a lot of cool stuff to share wow, this person's really hot and sexy, you know, like acknowledge the positive things, but then also acknowledge, you know, this person doesn't respond to my texts very often, or, you know, this person doesn't really seem to be very engaged, or this person doesn't seem to make a lot of effort, or, you know, this person says one thing, but their actions don't really seem to show the same thing. So 
Like acknowledge the positive things and acknowledge the negative things. And then what you want to do is where those negative things show up, you want to ask yourself, okay, like, is this a deal breaker for me or is it something I can be okay with? Because not all negative things are bad. They're just things that you don't feel great about. So, you know, ask yourself, like, is this an absolute deal breaker or is this just something I don't love? You know, like, for example, somebody might not respond to texts for a few hours and you might be like, well, I would really love it if they would respond immediately. But you could say, you know what? They're busy. They have a life. They're not super connected to their phone. I get that. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. They respond always. They answer all my messages. It just takes them a little while. That's okay, right? Not a deal breaker. But if it's like they don't respond at all or they don't respond for days or they're, or I caught them in a lie, right? Like if there are things that are deal breakers, then you want to talk about those things. So if we go with the texting example, you could say to someone like, hey, you know, um, I really enjoy our relationship or, or I really enjoy spending time with you. I really, you know, I, I like where this is going. I like how I feel. You know, I always say when you want to bring something up, start with what's good. Let the person know that you're you're not mad at them, that you do, that you do like them, that you do like what's happening. And then after you, you know, set that up that, you know, I, I am enjoying this and there's something I would like to talk about. I've noticed that with your text messages, you know, you, you tend to not respond for a few days. And I was just thinking like, you know, if this goes on further, I'm probably going to lose interest in this relationship because I, you know, I want to be more connected than that. I want to be able to get a response in the same day. I, I want to be able to have a conversation, you know? So if, if that's, if that's how it's going to be, then that's okay. But I'm, I'm probably just not going to want to keep seeing you. And if you're open to maybe responding sooner, then maybe this could go somewhere, right? You could set it up like that and just have a conversation about it. And then, so what you want to do, identify the positive things, identify the negative things. With the negative things, ask myself, what is a deal breaker and what's not? With the things that are deal breakers, have a conversation about them. See if there's the potential to work on something there. If there is, great. If there's not, that's okay too. It's just not a fit and you need to go your separate ways. I mean, that's really simple. It's really simple and really clear. I know what complicates it is our emotions and our desires and wanting to not lose the person and, and wanting to, well, you, you know, maybe I'm misreading the situation and we try to talk ourselves out of it, but those are the things we've got to stop doing, right? We've got to face up to things as they are. We've got to face up to ourselves as we are, right? Going back to what I was saying is, is stop, Stop going into your ego about trying to control everything and manipulate everything and just allow those authentic impulses to come through. Be yourself. Let this person experience you. Ask that question you want to ask. Say that thing you want to say. Invite that person to go out with you. Like, just do it. Just let those authentic impulses come through and trust whatever happens because of that. Um, I'm going to close it out here. This has been a great conversation today. You, you have sent in excellent questions um, thank you to those of you who bought badges. I know there were a bunch of them today and, and thank you so much for that. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've enjoyed the, the questions that you've all sent in. Um, thanks so much for being with me today. Conscious Love Show podcast is available on all major platforms. So uh, please, those of you on Instagram, uh, go subscribe. I would love it if you leave a review, rate and review the podcast and just let people know what you think of us. Um, 
other than that, yeah, nothing else I want to close out with. Oh, I did want to say um, one other thing. Inspired Love, I've been getting a lot of questions. People have been reaching out. When um, does Inspired Love open again? So Inspired Love is going to be open for enrollment on January 1st. Um, it'll be open for enrollment on January 1st. So those of you who are interested, like, thank you for your interest. I'm very excited about this next, uh, this next leg of the program. Um, so thank you. And yes, uh, it'll be open January 1st. We're going to start. Let me actually, before I give you the date, let me just confirm it here. Um, yes. Inspired Love is going to begin on February 15th, the day after Valentine's Day. So um, so it's going to open for enrollment on January 1st. We'll be enrolling for a few weeks, and then we're going to begin on February 15th. So those of you who are interested, um, just keep your eyes open. We're going to let everybody know when it's open for enrollment. And um, I am super excited about this, uh, this next program. It's going to be really, really great. So lots of love to everybody, sending you love. Um, wherever you are in the world, happy rest of your week. And um, I will see you back here next Tuesday. Much love and blessings. Bye-bye. Thanks again for checking out the show. Please subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on the most. And I would love it so much if you'd leave a review and tell people what you think of us. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at The Living Relationship to connect more closely. And I'm grateful to be supporting you on your journey to love.